to Inside Sponsorship, the show that provides sponsorship professionals with advice, insights and news so they can maximise their commercial programmes and achieve best practice. One of the reasons I love hosting this podcast is because of the smart people I get to speak to. What is even cooler is when a smart person brings a few surprises or new ideas or angles to the discussion. So I'm glad to report that Joseph Burrell, Head of Commercial Strategy at Valencia CF, has done just that for us in this episode. Playing in Spain's La Liga, Valencia CF have a great footballing history and celebrated their centenary year in 2019 by winning the Copa del Rey, Spain's annual knockout football competition. But not only does Valencia CF have a great footballing history, they also have a real and deliberate connection with the Valencia region, as you'll hear later on from Joseph. And that absolutely translates positively to Valencia's commercial program. But as I mentioned, this episode gives us a few surprises as well. And you'll hear from Joseph later on about how they leverage the Valencia Innovation Hub and a business club they established during their centenary year that has seen other football clubs reaching out and connecting. Joseph made the move to Valencia CF from the agency side where he spent two and a half years at Nielsen in London, including roles as a football account manager and a commercial insights manager. Hi, I'm Daniel Oyston, host of Inside Sponsorship, and you're listening to episode 103, brought to you by Core Software. And it's great to have you listening to the show, no matter where you are in the world or what your connection is with the sponsorship industry. Shout out time. And just the one this time around, and it goes out to Brett Ferguson, who works in business development at OTK Media. And Brett connected on LinkedIn and wrote, recently, I have just switched roles from SaaS sales to sponsorship sales. And I wanted to reach out and thank you for the insight shared in Inside Sponsorship. It has helped me understand what marketing and sponsorship leaders are looking for when they partner with an organization. As I move into this industry, I'm always looking to level up my approach. Thanks. Well, great to hear from you, Brett, and great to hear that the show has helped. However, as always, the credit goes to our amazing guests because the generosity and willingness to share never ceases to amaze me. And I know all of the listeners out there are just as grateful as you. While we hear from Joseph Burrell later on, we'll now hear from Jordan Rutner, Research Marketing Manager at Core Software, who joins us to discuss his latest blog at coresoftware.com, which examines quick service restaurant partnerships in sports. Here's Jordan. Jordan, welcome to the show. We haven't had you on the show for a, a, a couple of months now. How are things in, in your part of the world in North America? What's been happening? Things are uh, going great here. Thanks for having me on again as well. North America, though, it's a busy time of year having uh, sports and entertainment always coinciding with the holidays. We, uh, we just had Thanksgiving recently, too, and that's a big football day for both uh, NFL and collegiate. And then coming up with the holidays, uh, Christmas is always a really big time for the NBA and we're right in the middle of baseball off season too. Um, hockey's getting really underway too, with playoffs starting the uh, in the late spring. So the seasons are really getting underway for three out of our four major sports right now. Major League Soccer also coming up on uh, the end of their playoff run too. So everything's really exciting. How's everything on your end? Pretty busy. We're gearing up for for Christmas. So in Australia, we have Christmas in summer. So it's hot. It's dominated by cricket and going to the beach and outdoor Christmas and seafood and all that sort of stuff. But of course, the the sport rolls on as well. I don't think we we've actually crossed the threshold and play any sports games on Christmas Day. But you do in America, don't you? Definitely. It is one of the big days of the year for the NBA season, where they have a few Christmas special games and. 
Yembe does a great job setting up the marquee matchups. So we might have an instance of Lakers versus Nets, games like that that are going to be the big ones that draw as many eyeballs as they can. How does Thanksgiving go and Christmas Day go when there's sport to watch in the middle? Does that does that cause a few family fights? Because Christmas usually causes a few family fights anyway, let alone if you're throwing some sport that you want to watch into the mix and you're not sitting at the dinner table when mum says dinner's ready. Having football on during Thanksgiving helps either create a fight or mitigate one entirely where you don't necessarily have to interact with all your family members at the same time if you don't want because you can just watch the game together. One of the beautiful things about sports is that it brings people together the same way that these family dinners are too. But a lot of times the sport acts as like a neutralizer for any family drama. Very good. Well, I might record some sport and put it on on Christmas Day for us. But no, we, we kick off sport again on Boxing Day. We have a, a cricket test that starts late morning. So my tradition is to slice up a couple of pieces of leftover ham, fry them in the uh, frying pan with some tomato on toast, and I sit there and I watch the start of the cricket, and it's one of my favourite times of the year. So, Jordan, you noted in your blog, which looks at sports partnerships in QSR, quick service restaurants, that's what QSR stands for, or more traditionally known as fast food restaurants, that the fall sports calendar in the US is as loaded as an Idaho potato at a Vandal's tailgate. Now, for those of us who might not be familiar with the slang of North America and are familiar with uh, the difference between an Idaho potato and a normal potato and, and what Vandal's are, and I think we know what tailgates are, how do they come together to create that slang and that analogy? All right, so, so that analogy might have been a little regionalized, but the University of Idaho their mascot is the Vandals, and Idaho here is very famous for producing a lot of potatoes for the country the world. So we just really wanted to see how outrageous of an analogy we can get for how packed the sports calendar is in the fall, uh, especially October being one of the busiest months for professional and collegiate sports. This was just a, a, an outrageous way to say things are busy, calendars are full, and we are ready to go. Um, but Overall, with, you know, the food analogies and everything like that, we noticed that a lot of quick service restaurants, fast food chains were promoting themselves a lot, especially during uh, college sports. If this was going to be on a broadcast, um, any billboards around the stadium too, and they're really just promoting different deals that they were having at the restaurants. Um, Wendy's was a huge one that really drove a lot of this traffic too. If you're watching one of the college sports, college football sports programs in the morning, you might have noticed um, a star running back, Reggie Bush, and a lot of Wendy's commercials and also Wendy's logos uh, just throughout the entire broadcast. So that's really, that's really what caught our eye during it. And then we just wanted to dive deeper and see how QSRs are impacting the industry. Are quick service restaurants really an integral part of sports in America, as in it's built into the the fabric, the experience, the game day experience, or is it more a case of they just run ads in mass media and sort of sidle along when sports are on? I think for a long time, quick service restaurants and sports were running uh, parallel with each other, especially here in America. And then they started realizing that there was a, a big overlap on the audience and trying to figure out which type of messaging can get the different customers and fans of each of them to start overlapping their habits. Um, so Wendy's was trying to push their breakfast sandwich during March Madness college basketball tournament and then also during college football season. 
because they realize that a lot of Wendy's customers might also be college sports fans too. So once they figured out that overlap, that's where they started crossing paths with each other. And overall, why are they a good fit? Why are QSR a good fit for sports? Because sports is all about being healthy and physical challenge, but fast food isn't really. I mean, a lot of QSRs will bring out a a healthy salad or a healthy wrap, but it's not their core offering. Why is it a good fit because of that? And also I'm interested in, in what they typically look to include in their sponsorship agreements in terms of assets, because you've included a great graphic in your blog at coresoftware.com, but I was hoping that you might talk us through it now. And you are right. Historically speaking, a lot of quick service restaurants were were known for being uh, an unhealthy option, uh, but over the years, they've really set their game up to having more products that fall under the line of either good for you or, you know, almost neutral, if you would, where you can have that salad that you're talking about in the water. You don't always have to have a cheeseburger and soda with it. Uh, there are expanded menus, especially now with a lot of the, the meatless options too, uh, a lot of the beyond meat type of um, options have really skyrocketed. But one of the things that we notice with fast food, QSRs, and um, overall sports in general, is that a lot of times they both bring out some type of nostalgia and comforting feeling. When, when you sit on the couch and you have you know, a burger, chicken sandwich, uh, any option really from these restaurants, it's, it's comfort food. You feel good about eating it because a lot of times it's, it's just delicious. And where I noticed personally that it coincided with college sports is a lot of universities have quick service and fast food restaurants around campus, if not on campus too, because people are constantly on the go. They're going to class, they're going to work, and they just need a quick option. And because these options are typically cheaper than your average restaurant, that also caters to a college student. A lot of times people are choosing food because of price, and that's a big deal to these types of sports fans, especially if that's something that resonates with them starting out as a student. In terms of the graphic, though, we... We got a little creative there. We wanted to make a food menu of sponsorship assets that QSRs are typically engaging in. And talking about Wendy's again, we noticed that when we're just looking at quick service restaurants that are sponsoring sports, over half of sponsorship deals from quick service restaurants include some type of broadcasting asset. So if that's going to be through a streaming service or a local or a national broadcast, they're really doing a good job leveraging broadcasting and promotions through that to get their messaging out there. On the other hand, a lot of times we'll see brands in general looking for tickets and hospitality assets because they want to be part of the team. They want to go to games, maybe be on the field, uh, sit in a premium level and entertain some of their clients too, using the sporting event as their entertainment. But with QSRs, we actually noticed the opposite that these types of assets were only present in about a third of the deals. So a huge difference compared to the broadcasting. And that really has to go with what their objective is. Why are they sponsoring these, um, these types of events? And they found that broadcasting was the best way to get their messaging out. You spoke about food and nostalgia at the start of your answer. And in another sports podcast that I sometimes listen to, I've heard them do a quick fire round of questions, you know, just what's your first answer, you know, five questions in 60 seconds type thing. So I thought I might, might ask you one question. One question that they ask is, what is the first food that you ever remember eating at a sports event? Hot dog. Is that a baseball game? And you go to a baseball game, you have to get a hot dog. 
peanuts, popcorn, Cracker Jacks, the, the classic baseball foods. Very good. All right, well, let's get back on topic. You gave us a great rundown there about the data. And, and what about where they focus their spend on sponsorships? Do they like to focus on particular sports in North America or is it fairly evenly spread? I'd say it's it skews towards a couple of the professional leagues. And when we're just looking at some of the, the major professional leagues in North America, particularly the NBA, the NFL, National Hockey League, Major League Baseball, Major League Soccer too, we're seeing almost 30% of the revenue that QSRs are generating for sports being allocated towards the NBA. So they found between broadcasting and the NBA that this is going to be a viable audience to send their messaging to. And the NFL is pretty close behind them with about 25, 26% um, of the revenue contribution for sponsorship spend. Uh, on the other hand, though, very recently, I think this only happened last week too, that we saw this data. iSpot TV was reporting that of the about $509 million that brands spent during college football this year, a third of that came from either insurance companies, car brands, or quick service restaurants. So QSRs cracked their way to the top three very quickly for just college football telecasts. The insurance one's interesting because not a lot of young people who'd be at college would have their head around making insurance a focus of their life and, you know, might even see it as discretionary spend, right? My guess is that they're catering to the adults that are still fans of college sports. Um, I'm one of them too. And now that I'm getting older, I'm trying to understand more about what the insurance world has to offer. What do I need to uh, keep everything protected? And because I'm watching college football every Saturday, I see Allstate and State Farm being some of the top spenders for most of the sporting events that I'm watching. Very good. Well, I can tell you that you can get trauma insurance. So if you suffer a major traumatic event in your life, you can you can claim against that. But I can tell you that your sports team losing a playoff or a grand final is not apparently as traumatic as uh, it needs to be to claim that insurance. So, What if they're not even good enough to make it to the postseason? Is that, does that count as trauma? <laughs> well, we can only ask. We'll just bring the insurance company. The worst they're going to say is no. But uh, Look, Jordan, great look at QSR and sports sponsorships. Now, listeners, if you'd like to read it, including that amazing graphic, that menu that Jordan spoke about earlier, simply head along to coresoftware.com and click on the resources link in the menu and then blog in the dropdown. Jordan, great to have you back on the show. What does Chris... Christmas and the new year look like for you in terms of work and consuming sport and considering your insurance options and travel and things like that? Uh, I'll actually be down in Florida, so I'll be having similar Christmas uh, weather-wise as you're having as well. So I'll be I'll be as warm as I possibly can, probably just hanging out by the beach with uh, some family members and some close friends, keeping it as casual as I can. Very good. As always, Jordan, it's been a pleasure. Have a great Christmas. Stay safe. Have a good break. And I look forward to discussing more of your really insightful blogs in the new year. You as well. Thanks for having me on. And I'm looking forward to uh, chatting with you more in the new year. Playing in Spain's La Liga, Valencia CF have a great footballing history and celebrated their centenary year in 2019 by winning the Copa del Rey, Spain's annual knockout football competition. But not only does Valencia CF have a great footballing history, they also have a real and deliberate connection with the Valencia region that absolutely translates positively to Valencia CF's commercial program. Joseph Burrell is Valencia CF's head of commercial strategy, 
But prior to joining Valencia, Joseph was on the agency side where he spent two and a half years at Nielsen in London, including roles as a football account manager and a commercial insights manager. As I said at the top of the show, I love a guest who gives us a few surprises, some things I wasn't expecting or planning on during the chat. And so I think you are going to get lots of value from hearing from Joseph. Here he is. Joseph, welcome to the show. We always start with an icebreaker question just to help the listeners sort of get to know you a little bit and have a little bit of fun just to ease into it. So the icebreaker question I've got for you is if you could invite three current Valencia players over for dinner, for a dinner party at your house, who are you going to invite and why? Well, I will definitely invite Yunus Musa, uh, an English-American player because He's such a nice guy, always smiler. He's a Londoner as well, so I'm sure we will have some experiences to exchange. And uh, then I will I will bring over Carlos Soler. Carlos Soler is an academy player and a Spanish international, and I admire him so much because uh, how he's developed his career. Uh, he has a university degree, and uh, the way he treats people, I think, is the way a captain should treat people. And then finally, we'll invite Gabriel Paulista, which is a Brazilian player, former Arsenal player as well, and because he's a very funny guy, and I think uh, we need that bit over a dinner. So I think that will be a good combo. Excellent. Sounds like it will be a great dinner party. So, Joseph, you spent two years at Nielsen on the agency side of sport. Why did you make the move to the rights holder side? What was attractive about moving to the rights holder side for you? It was more from professional perspective and personal perspective. So from the professional side of things, I always been interested in sponsorship. Uh, and after working some time at Nielsen, I realized that in order to evolve as a professional, I needed that experience on the right holder, uh, right holder side. I always thought that you know people that have experiences on, on agency um, right holders and brands have a very wide perspective of the of the landscape and um, that was something i was i was i was looking for to be honest and working at at valencia is giving me that on the other hand as well i'm about a football a football fan so working uh, in a football club is always an extra and if uh, we add this to the fact that i'm a valencia supporter uh, so as you can imagine this was a, a dream move for me and i'm enjoying it so much on the flip side, I have to say that uh, working for team Beach support uh, makes things affect you more. But, uh, well, I think it's something that uh, you get used to it to, to separate emotions and, and, and work. You mentioned perspective there. Was there anything that surprised you when you arrived at Valencia in terms of them being a rights holder and starting to get that different perspective? As in, was there something maybe you saw differently that they maybe didn't fully appreciate that maybe your previous views from the agency side gave you some fresh eyes on things? Was there anything that surprised you when you arrived? Yeah, there, there were a few things, and not only on because of the fact of being a, a rights holder, I'm Spanish, and um, even being Spanish, I would say, uh, and after working in the UK for five years, I see differences already on the cultural side of things. So I see British people um, approach issues more, or more in a conservative way, while Spanish people are more direct. I would say this about Southern Europeans as well. As well. So that was a big shock from the beginning. Then the pace of work as well. So working in an agency, the workflow is constant, and you organize your calendar around deadlines, while seeing a rights holder what uh, is very difficult to predict when are going to be the busiest times. And in terms of um, going back to your question, 
Yeah, it surprised me that um, me being uh, having a data background or uh, having embraced what the Nielsen culture of of, of a data driven culture and using data in order to justify decisions on a daily basis, this was something that maybe wasn't that much established um, in the club when I arrived. And uh, it's been a process of educating, you know, people that were very good at some things, but trying to help them understand that by using data, we were going to be able to maybe target brands that we weren't targeting before and being able to enrich our propositions and in the end talk the same language that brands talk. Speaking of targeting brands, now that you are at Valencia, you, you, you've, you're in the seat, you're on the ground, you're doing the work. What does your portfolio of partners look like? Can you give us a bit of a rundown on your partnership portfolio for us? So we have Sotheos.com and Puma on the, on the top of the pyramid. Uh, with Sotheos, we promote our own fan token and we can discuss that afterwards. And uh, the deal with Puma was a big win for us as well because uh, we we become um, the flagship team for Puma in Spain, which give us a lot of exposure and a lot of possibilities, not only in the domestic market, but on the on, on globally. Then we have a second tier of partners that we call Premium Plus Partners that can be the global partners. So in that tier, we have Siloon Tire. There's a Chinese tire manufacturer. We have uh, SunTrade, that's an online trading platform from Singapore and Skoda, that's car manufacturer. And then we have two other tiers that we call premium and official partners that they, they differentiate depending on the assets that they have. And these are more regional. So in this one, we have brands of the likes of Kaisha Bank as our banking partner. We have Coca-Cola, some drinks. We have Cecil that works on the buy now, pay later space. We have Amstel as a partner, Acronis, Cybersecurity, Sumup.com, Nutrition Partner, Be the Travel Brand, Travel Agency, Hackett, Suits, Welling is our airline partner, Vital Dent, our dental practice partner, FC Energias, uh, our energy partner, and So Rare as our NFT collectible partner. So we have a pretty good roster, in my opinion, and taking into consideration that the performance on the pitch hasn't been ideal. Lately, we've been still able to convince brand that, you know, uh, we are completely independent of what happens on the beach. And uh, for that reason, we are quite, quite, quite happy. We are still on the top four in terms of revenue in Spain, uh, in terms of you know, on a sponsorship. So in that sense, I think uh, we, we're doing a good job. Lots of global brands there as well as, as regional ones. And I'll come back to that point in a second. But as a follow-up to what your portfolio looks like, a team has to manage it. So what about that commercial team? What does it look like? How is it structured for you? On the umbrella of the commercial director, we have seven people, which is divided in what we call international business and local business. I oversee the international side, which is focused on selling the big opportunities that we have as a club, which normally, but not limited, are linked to having exposure on the kit. So normally these are global brands that you know understand that football is a great platform to have uh, global exposure and as a difference with two other teams we don't have the capabilities or the or the or the, or the workforce that bigger teams have so the type of profile that people that we have in the team is is very specific we need people that speak languages at least three so we can avoid you know having to go through intermediaries constantly and we have people that need to have like not not experience in, in a sponsorship, but a commercial and a, and a strategy mindset. Because 
In the same way that other teams, maybe they have two departments, they have a business intelligence department uh, that focus on helping uh, with argumentation for sponsorship and a sales department, and they work together. Our sales, we have to do it all in one. So that means that it's very enriching in the sense that we have exposure to all the, to the whole sponsorship process, but at the same time, we need people that are very versatile and they can do a bit of everything, which is not easy to find. Then on the other side, we have four people that work on the local side of the business. So these are companies that are uh, people that are looking to, for companies that are on the regional level or on the local business to improve that ecosystem that is very important as well. You mentioned there how the team is split into groups and one of those focuses on international business. A lot of football teams these days, they have a strategy of trying to be a big global brand and, and a lot of reach and, and engage fans regionally. Is that something that Valencia looks to do? Yeah, for sure. But uh, I would say about a certain degree. You know, Of course, we want to be recognized globally and be in the minds of fans. But obviously, we don't have the resources that uh, that big teams in Europe have, no? So we need to be very efficient with the resources that we have, use them efficiently. That's why we don't go global. We focus normally on only three markets uh, where we think we have opportunities on the commercial side of things and on the branding side of things. So I can give you an example of, of one of the markets that we've been uh, working during the last five years, that is South Korea. This is because an opportunity arose. Uh, we we have a player in, in our academy from South Korea. He won a, a TV show, a football TV show in South Korea when he was very little, when he was seven. And after winning that TV show, he moved to Valencia with his family in order to pursue his dream of being a professional footballer. And he's been with us since seven years. So this TV show had a lot of exposure in South Korea. So a um, lot of people have been following him. In fact, in our website, the, the highest number of visits come from South Korea. In our e-commerce, the, 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 the maximum number of requests comes from South Korea. And just to give another example, the TV audience of Valencia in South Korea last year was higher than Barcelona so, or Real Madrid, to put that into context. So this is something that has helped us to unlock opportunities as creating a regional e-commerce partnership, creating a supporters groups in South Korea, open up two new academies, and finding a new regional sponsor in there. So as a summary, we cannot go global, but we are very aware of the specific opportunities that we can, that we can exploit that uh, give us an extra edge that maybe in other markets where, that are more crowded, maybe we won't be able to stand out as much. I love that story about how there's a, a narrow or a very niche opportunity, but because it is niche and, and it is in an untapped market, a lot of people are really engaged with it. I love it. That's fantastic. So, Joseph, the sponsorship landscape, in terms of what sponsors were receiving in partnerships, before COVID came along, it was pretty set or it was pretty stock standard. There wasn't that much innovation happening, but as I said, COVID came along and, and digital was really accelerated. It was starting to build pre-COVID, but once COVID hit, it, it really did come to the fore. And of course, things you mentioned it earlier before, like fan tokens have really taken off over the last sort of 12 to 18 months. But now that we are pretty much on the other side, of COVID and we're starting to get back to business as usual pretty much. What does what brands are requesting from you, from rights holders, what are they requesting and talking about in their sponsorships? What does it look like in terms of the assets and the rights that they are seeking from you? 
One of the things that um, I've seen more and more is um, that it has changed completely is when negotiating the contract. So what do we put in the contract? Prior to COVID, the force majeure clause in the contracts was almost completely overseen or we uh, hardly paid any attention to it. And now we spend so much time on it. We spend so much time on analyzing and measuring uh, the value every single asset that we're going to put in the contract because we want to understand how we're going to compensate this, how we're going to, what uh, what amount of money going to give back in case something happens, in case the competition ends, in case another pandemic comes in. So this is something that is being completely new and I'm seeing it. And we're spending so much time when writing the contracts in that sense. The other thing that I'm seeing is obviously everything needs to be measured. Partners, brands want assets that can be measured. And one of the examples that I can put you is uh, the type of relationship that we have with Cecil, that is a payment method in the buy now pay later industry. We have meetings with them every single week. And I will say from there, we spend only 20% of the marketing side of things. We spend 80% of the time in understanding how we're going to increase that share that they have within the payment methods in our e-commerce. So it shows you that brands are looking at things that are not that related to brand building anymore, is which asset can have an impact on their businesses. And sponsorship professionals need to be focusing on understanding these other businesses as well. So not only on, on, on traditional sponsorship. That's another thing. And the third thing is I think brands are helping uh, at, at trying to get help from right holders on the digital marketing side of things. So instead of me using the media budget that I have, how are you going to help me to use this media budget efficiently? Do you have the capabilities as a right holder? This is the conversation that we're having at the moment. And uh, especially now, for example, in Spain, that we're losing a massive revenue stream from betting companies, it's a time for sponsorship professionals to uh, evolve and be able to understand other industries and create new assets for these new industries as well. You spoke earlier about how your team is split into an international and a local focus, and that makes complete sense to me because football teams around the world are very connected to their local cities and their local communities and regions. Now, as a Leeds United supporter, it, it makes me smile when I go and visit the ground or I read a match day program online when I'm in Australia and I see so many local businesses engaged with the club. And I mean, it's a Premier League team. It's the only one in its city. It's a big city in England, but it has a global following. But then we see Jim's Concrete or the Leeds Suit Shop, and they'll be the match day sponsor in the hospitality lounge. There's a, a couple of hundred people in there. While Valencia have a portfolio of global brands that you spoke about earlier, and you sort of touched on the local ones a little bit, is there much room and, and is there a culture in Spain for local brands to be involved in the club, like I explained in Leeds? And what I mean by that is is like hyper-local niche, really small businesses to still be part of the club? Uh, yes, uh, we have that culture too. And, and it's not surprising because I don't know if you know, but uh, Leeds and Valencia were founded on the, on the same year, on 1919. And in our case, we are not the only club of the city. Um, because, but we still are the, the biggest and most well-known company in the region. Uh, and I will say it's with a focus on a global scale. Having said this, uh, we understand that it's our duty as well 
and we understand the importance of, of the community and we understand the need of integrating uh, local brands uh, within the ecosystem. We started doing this in our centenary anniversary and in 1919 we created a new tier that we call Centenary Partner and we have been building it from there. From these companies that we gather uh, through uh, during our centenary, we created a new good nice project to involve these companies called a business club. And this business club, well, we created it because we wanted to have these local companies close to our environment. We wanted to make them feel that they belong. And it's another way as well to attract other companies in the ecosystem. We've, won, we've gone from 150 to 400 companies in the last two years. And this is something that we are very, very, very excited about because, again, we've been able to create a zero system that everybody can have access to. So if you're a company, you can go into a website and you can put your details so that other companies can have access to it. And you have the right contact and the right person and not and the club doesn't have to be the intermediary constantly. This has been a success. We've been we've been providing support to other clubs in La Liga and to clubs in Italy that they want to know how we develop the project. And this has ended up by creating synergies between clubs and organizing visits between from business clubs members to other business club members. So again, we are very involved in, in the community and, and local companies are as important as global partners. That's an amazing example. I love that the outcome has been that business community is, is going and visiting other business communities because that's how business works. They need to go and network and, and meet people and talk face-to-face and see where those conversations going. Joseph, this year, while Valencia is the 38th partner of Socios.com overall. You were, in fact, the first to strike an actual front-of-shirt deal with Socios, and it does, in fact, carry the Valencia fan token branding. So congratulations on that. It's definitely a deal that obviously benefits Socios as they build awareness and engagement in the community and among football fans. But it also helps you generate income through your own fan tokens because you are promoting them on the shirt. So it's a very unique situation there. Now, I did a little bit of research. Reports say that the deal didn't match the previous front of shirt sponsorship. But I suspect that because this deal helps generate income outside of the actual just sponsorship transaction and and contract, it's probably not that much of a major concern. You can correct me if I'm wrong. As I said, it's pretty unique. How did it come about? And so far, has it provided much of a return on investment in terms of reduced sponsorship off income being offset by maybe increased fan token purchasing? So as a club, we've been talking to Sophius for a long, long time and uh, discussing different options and ways to collaborate and especially trying to educate internally the club on how this could benefit us. You know, at there was a moment that where the possibility of being a main sponsor came to the table and we saw it as a good opportunity as a peer level, as it reinforces our interest to be seen as a disruptive club. And therefore promoting you know, our fan token you know, made sense. At the same time, uh, we were aware, aware that we were taking a risk because we were the first ones and because we had allocated so many time, resources and assets from the traditional sponsorship into the into the project to make it a success. But we understood as well that with risks come the opportunity. And now we both parties, we have embraced the challenge. Uh, we are activating the partnership a lot 
because we understand that the more we activate the partnership, the more we're going to drive um, token purchase, which again is related to to with the increase the of an engagement. And yeah, there, there's a revenue share part of the deal. And but being conservative, we believe that we can come close to, if not exist, the amount that paid by we win. So we'll see at the end of the season. But uh, I think uh, we are in the right path. Now, we have heard some stories from some football clubs with fans pushing back against things like fan tokens because they sometimes view it just as as the club trying to grab more money from them to suck more money out of them, and, and they don't really understand it. But in fairness, lots of fans have actually bought tokens from their clubs, including myself. What's the experience been like at Valencia in terms of educating the fans on the on the token front? Yeah, right. I heard as well that there were some issues in the UK. And to be honest, we haven't had much criticism, at least not more than the usual. In the end, you cannot please everyone in a football club. That's that's for sure. But I think this is more exclusive of the UK. And I think it's a cultural difference as well. I think the press um, has so much power there as well in terms of building or protecting the purism of football. And in my opinion, I think... This can be a bit cynical at some point because we were talking about yeah about capitalizing the fan. I heard that, and uh, about you know making money out of the fan. When we've been doing this for years and years, so we sell shirts, we sell merchandising of all of all kinds. So this is another platform as well. I think as as fair as others. So, but obviously we try we tend to protect uh, of the sport. For us, the fact of having invested that much time and assets. It has helped us to 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 educate the fans in a, in a better way, you know, because we've been doing different activities uh, almost weekly. We've uh, allowed the fans to decide what will be the logo in our in our Copa del Rey kit, for example. We've allowed them to decide what will be the message that uh, the players will have in the dressing room. So, obviously, for us, it's been a, an easier an easier journey than other clubs that maybe they have signed the agreement and they haven't pushed the partnership from the fan engagement perspective. At the moment, Socios.com fan tokens are mostly focused on engaging fans and allowing them to have a say in some club decisions. And you gave some great examples there around the logo and messages in the change room. And it's definitely an emerging space. So there's lots of people involved, but it's not really accelerating that quickly. How are you thinking that they're going to change over time and, and particularly how do you see the space working with fan tokens uh, and incorporating sponsorship as it matures i think it's evolving already pretty fast and and in the case of fan tokens uh, you have seen how they have given a step forwards uh, with us and, and and afterwards with inter milan as well into a more traditional uh, sponsorship concept um i think over the time if they want to keep being relevant, they need to keep reinforcing the utility of the token by creating new opportunities, as it could be creating NFTs, as they are doing already with us, or by using the ecosystem to offer possibilities to other partners of the club, for example. So focusing on, on keeping that fan engagement is what I think is going to help them succeed in the near future. At the same time, you can see other players within the fan token ecosystem that they are completely focused on on, on driving revenue only. So this, I don't know if those ones will be able to last longer. But I didn't want to talk only about fan tokens because I think 
this evo uh, revolves around um, blockchain technology, which I think is is limitless and um, the opportunities are limitless. I think they're gonna they're here to stay. We've seen companies in the NFT space that are already partnering, partnering with clubs, as could be Daper Labs or so rare, with uh, highlights and uh, NFT collectibles. You have crypto exchanges as well that they are looking after the security that provide being aligned with a sporting IP. You have cryptocurrencies itself that they want to to improve their, their image and, and, and again have that security that maybe they don't have because of the nature of their business. And but what I'm seeing in this space is that there's so many opportunities but we have to be very cautious about them. Because the same way that they could fill the space or the financial gap that I think betting the betting industry has left. At the same time, there are so many people that want to make money out of it as well. And we've seen uh, examples of Manchester City or FC Barcelona that have announced partnerships in the space and they have had to back up afterwards. So due diligence are very important. As I said, opportunities are endless, but we have to be very cautious, cautious as well. Joseph, you have spoken about so many amazing things that Valencia CF is doing, but there is even more because you also have an innovation hub. And I want to ask a question about that, but probably best to set the scene for the listeners to, to before I ask my question. So what is Valencia CF Innovation Hub all about and what does the club hope to get out of running it? So in a nutshell, the the mission of the, of the Valencia Innovation Hub is one, to support the local talent and the promising companies that we have in, in the area, to be ambassadors and show commitment to these Valencian companies, and to be leaders in the technological innovation. We think that these three points are going to help us uh, or ha are going to have a direct impact on the brand growth of the of the club. And uh, that's, that's, the, that's the reason why we created this. So we understood that we needed help in four verticals. That's why we created the Innovation Hub. One is medical, so which companies can help us to improve injury prevention, uh, nutrition, new treatments. The second one is the academy, so which companies can help us with softwares to improve our scouting or the performance of our players. The third one, we call it smart stadium, so what kind of companies can help us in this space, so in 5G technologies, new payment methods, mobility, sustainability. And the fourth, fun engagement. So which companies can help us in AR experiences, social media, e-sports. And so we decided to create this in that sense, taking that as well into consideration that being a football club is very complicated to introduce innovation and preserve the essence, the traditions, and satisfy all different types of audiences that we have within the club. But uh, right now, it's, it's, it's been a success. We have companies that for example, that has helped us to, there's a company specifically that create like kind of boards in which when you step creates clean energy. So we are working with them towards uh, using, putting that, those boards under the, under the floors in the stadium and even under the pitch. So when people step on, we create that clean energy that we can, can make our stadium sustainable. Or we have another company that is helping us to predict the attendance that we're going to have and they are ridiculously ridiculously close to the to the numbers so 
it's helping a lot. It's, it's, a, it's a great project. It sounds like there's so much amazing stuff going on. I love the the panels and the clean energy idea. It's, I can feel as though that could be integrated right throughout a stadium, and then it just spreads out into academies and office spaces, and then and then a city becomes self sustaining. So. Valencia CF Innovation Hub, it does partner with Startup Valencia, the Startup Ecosystem Association in the Valencia region, and also Camara Valencia, which represents the promotion and the general interests of commerce and industry in the Valencia region. Is there much scope to bring in new commercial partnerships or or even look to grow existing sponsors with some sort of leverage or connection with the hub? Yes, and I think it worked both ways. So our existing partners can be part of the hub and we encourage them to, to get involved by helping us with prices and the rewards that it provides to the companies that we we choose to be in the innovation hub. For example, our banking partner, Caixa Bank, is uh, very much involved. They already invest in, in, in the startup ecosystem themselves, but we always introduce them to the new companies to see if they are interested in, in, in investing. On the other hand, this is a project with a long-term strategy from the commercial perspective as well. So we envision the hub as an opportunity to create the sponsors of the future. So now we are providing these companies a platform that is our club to be linked to and, and that puts them in the spotlight, gives them the reach and networking that maybe they don't have at this uh, early or embryonary uh, stage that they are. And hopefully, you know, once they get bigger, they will remember who helped them at the beginning and, uh, and we can work together. Another great initiative is the VCF Foundation. And I absolutely love its mission, which is, quote, we envision a community strengthened by the same spirit that made Valencia CF what it is today. The mission is to pass on the spirit and heritage of Valencia amongst Valencians repay Valencian society for its support by caring for the disadvantaged and promote a sense of belonging and attachment to Valencia CF, end quote. Absolutely fantastic stuff. What is the appetite from brands to engage with the foundation as part of their sponsorship of Valencia CF? We've seen that there's more and more appetite and and we're seeing as well that within our sponsorship proposition is key to have a very well-defined CSR strategy. So everyone needs to be part of the events in order to be able to afterwards offer these possibilities and these experiences to brands. Because beyond the economical side, I think working for a football club demands you as a person to be involved in this kind of in this kind of good causes. We have another project that we're working with with the foundation and with La Liga that is called La Liga Genuine, that is a competitive league for people with uh, intellectual disabilities. Um, that aims to normalize their participation in the sport. And it's a great project. Brands are so much interested in being involved. So we are very happy about that. We've changed Frontshed sponsor Albos every single season. And this is things that I think from the commercial and marketing perspective help us to become better professionals and uh, helps them to be closer to the community. Because in the end, I don't think that we don't come to the office only to do a job, that we belong not only to a company, but we are part of the community as well. Great framing. I could not agree more. Joseph, so much great stuff going on at Valencia CF. You sound like an extremely busy man. So where do you go to keep up to date with what is happening in the sponsorship industry or even outside the industry just to help you be the best sponsorship professional you can be? I read lots of newsletters. 
so I signed up for many. So I try to keep up to date with uh, English stuff, Spanish stuff, read things from different markets. I listen to so many podcasts. I listen to this one and to others related to sponsorship. And from other industries as well, especially when I try to target a, a different, uh, and a specific category, I try to get involved and, and read and listen to information about this company because to be a good uh, sponsorship professional, you not only know, you don't only need to know about sponsorship in football, you need to know about how other companies make money, how the companies uh, reach their objectives. So that's what I try to, how I try to do my research in order to, you know, to, to be successful. Joseph Burrell, Head of Commercial Strategy. It's been an absolute pleasure having you on the show. So much great stuff that you've spoken about. So thank you so much for coming on the show and taking us inside Valencia CF. Thank you very much, Daniel. It's been a pleasure. I totally love some of the framing and execution of what Joseph and the team are doing at Valencia CF. The Innovation Hub sounds amazing, and it's a really good example of how industry and football can work together and help each other. And I also loved hearing about the Centenary Business Club, and it's so awesome that other clubs are connecting and that all those businesses are connecting with each other. Amazing stuff. If you'd like to learn more about Valencia CF, simply head to valenciacf.com. And if you'd like to connect with Joseph, head to LinkedIn and search for Joseph. That's J-O-S-E-P, Burrell, B-O-R-R-E-L-L. If you'd like a shout out or you just want to connect and say hi to me, then I'd totally love to hear from you. I get a real kick out of it. Connect with me on LinkedIn. Just search for Daniel Oyston. That's O. Y-S-T-O-N. And if you want to connect with Jordan Rutner, Research Marketing Manager at Core Software, you can catch him on jordan.rutner at coresoftware.com or search for him on LinkedIn as well. That's Jordan, J-O-R-D-A-N, Rutner, R-U-T-N-E-R. Well, that's a wrap for episode 103. Until next time, I'm Daniel Oyston. Thanks for listening to Inside Sponsorship. Thanks for listening to the show. For more episodes and to subscribe to the show, search for Inside Sponsorship on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever it is you listen to your podcasts. Also, for more free industry-specific resources, including blogs, eBooks, white papers, and our Insights newsletter, head to coresoftware.com. Finally, be sure to follow Core Software on Twitter and LinkedIn.